Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic. Found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. As befits her name, Joyelle Nicole Johnson is a comedian and writer who brings joy to the stage. She made her network TV debut in 2018 on Late Night with Seth Meyers. But it was her May 2021 appearance on The Tonight Show starring Jimmy Fallon that made such an impression that Fallon himself decided to executive produce Johnson's debut stand-up special for Peacock. Her previous credits have included writing on Broad City, warming up the audiences for Netflix's Patriot Act with Hassan Minaj, and she'll soon be seen on the upcoming season of HBO Max's Search Party. Johnson released her first comedy album, Yell Joy, on Juneteenth of 2021, and she recorded her Peacock special, Love Joy, on her 40th birthday. The comedian talks to me about all of that and more on this podcast. If you like this conversation, please consider subscribing to my Substack called Piffany at piffany.substack.com so you can read bonus commentary on this episode as well as more comedy news and insights. Thanks in advance, and now that that's out of the way, let's get to it! <laughs> Joy L. Johnson, uh, congratulations, last things first, congratulations on Love Joy, your Thank new special you. on Peacock, which you recorded you. on your birthday. I did record on my birthday, on my 40th birthday. So recording a your first full-length comedy special on your birthday, where does that rank? on your list of 40 other birthdays. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure it's pretty much the best birthday. I mean, for me, especially because of the fact that I am able to say I did it. I mean, there are there are very few gauges of success for our career. I mean, there's many gauges, but to say you did a finally taped a special, which a lot of people do not get to do, and to do it on your birthday, I mean, yeah. Okay, so then what was, what was your best birthday before your 40th? Ironically enough, my birthday is on September the 12th. I had a great birthday the year of 9-11 because I was in college and all of my friends just kind of overcompensated. So we had a really awesome party that next day because everyone was so sad so we were just like let's get together and have a party and they had a surprise party for me at boston college and it was absolutely amazing so and then the other time when i jumped out of an airplane that was pretty cool oh wow yeah that is cool i haven't done that and i'm older than 40 hey you should get it in there sean <laughs> so it's it's not just uh love joy joy on Nicole Johnson on Peacock, but it's also Jimmy Fallon presents. How did, oh how, did how did that happen? How did that happen? It happened the way that dreams happen. You know how you see something in a dream and then it happens. I mean, every comedian is like the dream is to do a late night set and then have that person produce your special. But I didn't even think that was possible. So apparently I did well enough on my first Tonight Show set that Jimmy said, her, let's let's produce her special. And I found out that he just really appreciated how kind I was. I mean, he talked to me for about five minutes before I went on stage and his producing partner, Jim Javonin, told my partner 
that Jimmy thought I was kind. And um, yeah, we were Virgos. So maybe that has <laughs> something to do with it. I don't know. <laughs> well, Joyelle, you are kind. I, I can attest to that in all of my experiences with you. Um, one of which, if not the last time, was ironically or coincidentally enough, I remember seeing you when I recorded my podcast with Maria Bamford at the Bell House. Oh. Because you were there and Liz Winstead was there. All of yes. your all of your universe uh, your orbits colliding. And then Maria is featured in the intro for your special, which was filmed at the Bell House in Brooklyn. Absolutely. Yeah, I know. Right. Life comes full circle weird at you. And uh, I will be with Maria at the Bell House uh, November, I think, 19th and 20th. Oh, nice. So it's so, coming back around. <laughs> well, you know, not just Maria and, and Jimmy, but there's a number of, of famous faces and names who appear in the beginning of your special. Uh, I'm not going to name them all because I want you to tell me. Which one of those people meant the most of, for you to be able to include? Oh, my goodness. I mean, I goes without saying all of them, but <laughs> I think, I guess my go-to answer would be Jeannie Yashere because of the fact that she's my big sister in comedy. She calls me her little sis. I'm her Muppet, um, <laughs> you know, and I'm her bratty little sister. She's treated me like that. For my whole entire stand-up career, I am now 15 years old, and I just looked up to her. Uh, I met her my first year in comedy in Los Angeles, and I followed her around like a little puppy because I was like, she knows what she's doing. So if you follow her around and you learn from her, you're going to know what you're doing eventually. And that's what it was because she was my inspiration being just an international touring black female comedian. And I looked at her and I said, okay. She can do it. And she told me, if I can do it, you can do it. And she's put the most most money in my pocket uh, at the beginning of my career, I will definitely say. And I got to tour and do road work with her. So everyone means a lot to me, but Gina especially because I've known her the longest out of all of those people who did the intro. What was the best advice she gave you when you were first starting out? Um, The best advice... I think she she would tell me that you need to go anywhere that will that will just kind of be a place that you can fit in. Like if you don't think you fit in somewhere, go somewhere else. And she was a testament to that to where she would work, you know, okay, a cruise ship, okay, uh a show in Ireland that's a TV show taping. You know, she she was just the number one hustler that I ever met. So she was just kind of like you know, you don't necessarily have to say no to gigs, but if you're uncomfortable with it, you can say no and just know that something else will come. Was being a substitute sense. teacher in South Central LA, was that a gig that she recommended to you or? That was not a gig she recommended, but she definitely told me that I need to keep working. And if <laughs> I work during the day and then do stand up at night, something will come of it. I I find it that like you, you, you tell stories slash jokes about being both a substitute in LA, but then also teaching yoga at a Jewish private school in New York city, which yes. for like 12 year old, like I, it, it baffles my mind 
that there would even be 12 year olds taking yoga classes and then they're yeah. taking them from you. So I, I know. Right. Right. <laughs> you're like, no, I'm, I imagine you're very flexible. I imagine you're very flexible. But. I, I was at a time. I was extremely flexible when I was the yoga instructor at that school. And whenever I tell people about the school, they'll, they'll act like I'm, I'm making it up. Like it, it sounds like a pitch for a television show or a movie. And it's like, no, this was a real place that I was able to work for a year and got to observe all of the zaniness that comes with kids that are so rich that their gym class is a private yoga instructor. So yeah, all of that is a hundred percent true story. The quotes from those students are true, but of course I couldn't say their real names because of legal and standards and practices. So that's the only thing that's made up in those jokes is the names that I used. Did, did any of those experiences, did any of those wind up in your pitches for writing with Broad City? Because those, those, those gals had to hustle and they might have ended up in some weird situations with rich Jewish kids. Uh, it actually didn't. And that's funny you say that. I, I did write a whole entire pilot about it. Um, and I wrote it with one of the teachers who taught there as well. He, he was a writing partner with me because, of course, he was the screenwriting instructor because you don't just have an English class. You have a screenwriting instructor at a school that rich. And uh, we would just be looking around every day like this school should be a television show. So I do have that pitch for the television show um, because it sounds like a television show. <laughs> I have I have spoken to more than a few comedians over the years who worked as either substitute teachers or full-time teachers. And I wonder how much of that is just because you still get to have an audience Mm. that, that, that that career is kind of appealing. I think, well, especially with, with um, substitute teaching, you get to have an audience, but kids, I mean, ain't nobody meaner than children. Kids are mean. (laughs) So they were probably the worst audience for stand-up, but it was a good uh, gauge of if I can entertain these kids, I can entertain anybody because ain't nothing scarier than a room full of 30 middle schoolers. I mean, they, they're the absolute worst. But the thing was, in South Central, I had a room full of kids, overflowing classrooms, and had the exact opposite with the rich kids because it was all one-on-one instruction. So I think the transient nature of substitute teaching um, allowed itself for a stand-up comedian because you can say yes or no any given day. And then also teaching in general, it's a day gig and it's not going to go into the night. So that was the difficulty when I would waitress. It's like the good shifts are the dinner shifts, but you can't do dinner shifts if you want to do stand up because you need to be on stage. So I'd have to take all the lunch shifts and, you know, make as much money depending on what restaurant you're in. So I can make a good amount of money, even though I don't like waking up early. Yeah, I was just going to say, being a young comedian, you're probably out late, not just doing open mics or grabbing stage time wherever you can but you're also networking with comedians and carousing and then you have to be up at six in the morning oh my gosh yeah there, there were so many of those days where i i would go straight to the school <laughs> I, would, I would go home shower and then go to the school and then at 3 p.m be absolutely delirious and go home and take a nap before i go back out to do stand-up 
Because, you know, you know, comedians, we will talk and talk and talk until two, three, four o'clock in the morning on the side of the road with not even food. It's like, can we go get something to eat? <laughs> Why are we talking this long? But comedy was always the go to for you, even coming out of Boston College and moving to L.A. Was that like the goal? I never thought I would be able to do stand up. I never thought I would have the confidence for it. Um it looked like something that I would love. I mean, I watched all of George Carlin when I was a kid watching his HBO specials and I would look at him and I'd be like, I think I can do that. I'm just scared. That's what I would always say to myself. I, I think I'm, I can do it. I'm just scared as you should be scared. It's a scary thing to do. And when I finally did it, I was like, oh, wow, that was really scary. I guess I'll do it again. I have a weird penchant for doing things that I'm scared of, i.e. jumping out of airplanes and <laughs> teaching kids in South Central Los Angeles. If I'm scared of something, I have to do it. And I guess it's kind of like a sadomasochist thing. I don't know. <laughs> I just do things that I'm scared of. So then when you when you come back to New York and by the time I meet you, you're hanging out with the other young comics outside of the comedy cellar, eventually making your way inside the olive tree. Were you scared then or did you have, had you acquired the confidence at that point? Because you seemed pretty. Confident? Yeah. Oh, well, thank you. Uh, I've said this before. I said that in an interview earlier today. I was faking that. So I appreciate you (laughs) for telling me I faked it well because (laughs) I was just a scared little, a scared little girl the whole time. I mean, I think I just started to get confidence. You know, it's like something about turning 40. I, you know, it's like you turn 30 and I felt more confident turning 30, but now turning 40, I'm like, okay. First of all, none of this matters. <laughs> none of it matters. We're all just kind of in a, a game simulation right now. So I'm way more confident now and I feel extra fantastic with the 40 in front of my in front of my uh number i like that f for 40 fuck it 40 was there a moment or a gig that represented the turning point for you and your confidence honestly doing the tonight show being my second um late night set and having to be there alone I couldn't go because of COVID restrictions. I couldn't have anybody with me. And the transition from, I did uh, Seth Meyers. That was my first set in 2018. Uh, I was shaking. I was holding the microphone shaking and I kept switching hands because I felt like, I felt like it looked like this. It didn't look crazy, but in my head, (laughs) I was so scared. Oh, wow. And then with tonight's show, I walked out and I was just so surprised at how, relaxed I was. I was like, oh, I got this. Nobody's here with me. That's fine. I'll be and I'll be even more confident this time because it's what my third time. So, oh, this is old hat now and I can bring people now. Oh, please. I mean, famous last words, but I think this year has been the turning point of my confidence. That's a global pandemic. That amazes me that you say that. And this is just based on my own perceptions, obviously. Because I remember seeing you hanging around Dave Chappelle and you were performing with him. And like, if anyone's going to be intimidating, you would think it would be Chappelle just to be in that orbit and to be performing for his fans and dealing with all the stuff that comes with that. 
Absolutely. But, and you were doing that before the shaky microphone. Oh, absolutely. And I, and I was intimidated. I was intimidated. I wasn't, I mean, it's like going into the comedy cellar. I got passed in 2016. I think I just got confident once again, like this year <laughs> of walking in there and being able to be like, Oh, I belong here. And I think, you know, coming out of a pandemic that we are still in, by the way. Um, thank you for, thank you for mentioning that. Yes. That uh, we are still in it. We're still in it, but that transition of having to be in the house for over a year and doing Zoom shows and not connecting with people really did change, you know, my frame of mind because I was like, oh, once again, none of this matters. And okay, what are are you scared of? There's nothing to be scared of anymore. So walk up in there and hold your head up high and put on some heels and you'll be all right. So... If you had a, a change of your frame of mind during the pandemic that's still ongoing, mm-hmm. how did that change perhaps what you wanted to talk about in Yell Joy, which is your uh, audio comedy debut, and yeah. Love Joy, which is your yes. video comedy debut? Was there a change in terms of like what you wanted to, how you wanted to express yourself or what you wanted to talk about on stage? I think it's just, I talked to Jackie Cation and she was like, greatest hits. That's what the special is, your greatest hits. So it's it's the culmination of 15 years of stand-up and, and all of the things that I have, you know, felt confident enough to bring to the stage. And some of the bits are from the album that are now, you know, being brought to life. So you get to see me acting them out and, you know, expressing them in an audio and visual format. So I think uh, that transition from audio to visual was just a culmination of general confidence in my material and knowing, hey, I must be funny if people are going to dump some money on top of my, <laughs> make it rain on me. Jimmy Fallon made it rain on me. So I must be funny. <laughs> You are funny, Joyal. Um, Thank you. You know, you mentioned earlier about like uh, moving toward things that scare you, such as jumping out of an airplane. Um, and I guess that makes sense, not just with the airplane or with touring with Chappelle, but then also, you know, I know you've been very active with, I mentioned Liz Winstead's name, mm-hmm. with the lady parts, Justice League or Abortionea or I don't uh-huh. know what the current abortion name. access front, mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the current name is. Yes. Um, but that's a, I mean, that's a very different type of comedy or comedic activism because absolutely you're on the front lines of a hot button political issue where you're encountering people who don't agree with you at all. Sometimes. I mean, not only don't agree, but also mean, mean me harm. Um, they mean people who are abortion rights activists and people who are proponents for abortion. They mean us harm. So I think that is one of the things that has really empowered me as an artist. I wanted to be an artist who was also an activist. And that came to me. You know, it's like if you put your intentions into the universe, you write what you want to happen it's going to come to you in a weird way. And that came to me as an opportunity 
uh, when she first started the organization, when it was Lady Parts Justice, um, one of my friends was like, hey, do you want to work with this organization? I was like, absolutely. I want to do that. Um, I've had an abortion. I had an abortion when I was in college. And I was like, if I can empower young girls or just any woman or person, person who has uh, the procedure with comedy, what? That's a thing. <laughs> and we made it a thing. We made something out of nothing. So um, that that's my my biggest point of pride for me, that I'm able to make people laugh, but also um, be an activist for abortion rights. Yeah, I find it, especially since not just the pandemic, but also since the Trump era, which may or may not still be a thing. Um, (laughs) So I hesitate because this podcast will exist later. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I've had more when we're all arrested. (laughs) I've had, don't joke. Uh, But I've had, I've had many discussions with comedians about, well, what is the role of the comedian and what can the comedian effectively do in terms of activism? Or is the comedian just the fool who's, right. who's shouting jokes into the wind? Right. And, and do you have a, a different perspective on that? I do not think the comedian is a fool. I know how powerful a comedian's voice is. And that is why I, I specifically want to try my best to use my words as carefully as possible because words are powerful and funny words from a funny person are even more powerful. And George Carlin framed my entire political mindset. You know, he was the one telling me, you don't really want to go to Sunday school. You don't really want to be a part of that church. Like he's the person who had me going against religion, challenging authority, not trusting politicians and, and just understanding that, if this person tells me and I trust them because they're funny, I can formulate different ideas. So he is the person that taught me how powerful my words are. So a comedian is a fool, but a fool can also influence people. Hmm. Uh, was the that activist, Ben, was that also what held appeal for you in terms of working with Hassan Minaj and when he did Patriot Act? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I got that opportunity, I got that phone call, I was extra excited because I know how uh, pure his intents are when it comes to the topics that he covers, you know, and from the global perspective of being, you know, an Asian minority, you know, in America and and being able to come from that perspective and be highly intelligent and uh, extremely, I guess, Anal might be the word because that man will take a topic and break it down from every perspective that you didn't think about. And once again, make people think and change people's minds and also get him banned in Saudi Arabia, which was a bold move. Right. <laughs> I was very proud to have my name in the credits of that episode. I was like, I might be banned in Saudi Arabia too. <laughs> now, after the show, I, I read some like wildly different extreme viewpoints of what it was actually like working on the show. Yes. You were, you were the warm up. Yes. Comedian. So did you see what it was like to work on the show or did you just come in and do your thing? 
I came in and did my thing. I mean, certain people, listen, warm-ups get treated in this industry <laughs> like um, trash. I'll say it. Warm-ups get treated like trash. We get treated as if we are not pivotal to an experience. And um, Ryan Reese, one of my super you know, good friends who is the warm-up comedian for so many shows, He was the one who just kind of was like, this is how the job, he kind of took me under his wing, but he was also like, it's a thankless job. And it absolutely is a thankless job from show to show. Uh, You get to experience it, but we as the warmups know how pivotal it is. And I didn't get to see, I wasn't there on a daily basis. So I only had my personal experiences, um, being the warm up and uh yeah some of them weren't the best some of the things i experienced weren't the best and uh some of the showrunners might have been <laughs> not well, the people that's, that's i mean yeah the things i heard were from peter people who i guess were writers or producers and, yes yeah exactly and it's, and it's always hard to know from the outside because and i'm just talking about the business aspect because obviously with the me too movement and everything we've we've learned a lot more about how comedians are off stage versus mm-hmm. how they are on stage. Um, yeah. I did intentionally save the, the toughest question for last. Ooh. Yes. Uh, so when was the last time Dave Chappelle took your advice? What? <laughs> I don't think I don't know if he's taking anybody's advice. I don't I don't know that anyone's giving him advice and I don't know that he's taking advice. Um it don't seem like anyone's giving him any advice. That's that's why I asked it the way I did because I'm I'm struggling as a journalist and a critic to figure out what's going on with Dave. And I know you know him a lot better than I do. Mhm. And I don't know the last time you talked to him or interacted with him at all. But even so, yeah. you know him a lot better than I do. And I just struggle to wonder, like, what's going, what, what's going on in his head? I mean, there's, there's just a certain level that you can get to that I have seen people get to in this journey. I'm 15 years in, and um, some people think they're beyond reproach. And some people think that our words aren't powerful and that we do not have the influence that we do. And um, one of the last times I spoke to him, I did tell him that I was uh, disappointed in the use of his, the way he uses his words and his power. So that's one of the last times I spoke to him. So you can imagine how that went over. <laughs> not many people tell this Dave Chappelle to their face that uh, he is a disappointment, but I did. And uh, yeah, that was the last time we spoke. <laughs> so, sounds yeah. like it sounds like he hasn't taken your advice then. Oh no, no, no! He's uh, actually I don't know tripled, quadrupled, and quintupled down on whatever is right. going on. So I wish him the best <laughs> on well, his journey, and I'm happy to not be involved in that. Well, that's why that's why your special is called Lovejoy. And not killjoy, right? <laughs> I mean, we the the abortion rights activists uh, call themselves feminist buzzkills because you know it's like I will bring up abortion any time, any chance I can. But 
I am a person who wants to celebrate it and I want to be able to celebrate things that are positive for me. So that is the premise of joy. I'm so happy my mother named me joy because I want to bring joy to people. And when it came to feeling like what my name for my album was going to be, Ramon Rivas gave me that suggestion for a name. And I was like, oh, yeah, I like that. And then I was like, oh, well, Love Joy makes sense if Yell Joy is the album. And you kind of can't say the names without smiling. Who's going to say Love Joy or Yell Joy <laughs> with a scowl on their face? So if if only because you're going to smile saying the name of the album of the special, that's what I want to put into the world. I want to put positivity as much as possible, even though I talk about controversial topics. Well, you have always brought joy to my my life. So <laughs> thank you for doing Yay! that before. And thank you for doing that again today. Thank you. I appreciate you for having me, Sean. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was post-produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music was by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. If you enjoyed listening, please check out my Substack called Piffany at piffany.substack.com for transcripts, bonus commentary, and expert analysis about comedy, show business, and more. I'm your host, Sean O. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Bye.